0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be able to sing with you. It's finally happened, uh, which is very exciting. I feel kind of, uh, I feel very good about singing together um, at the same time. It must have been a hard week uh, to lead for Stella, for, uh, for Josh, because uh, you know, their voices are so good. I haven't sung out in a little while, so I feel a little bit rustier. Um, I'm not a very good singer anyway, like as uh, some of these guys in the corner might be able to attest. You can ask them later. Um, if we haven't had a chance to talk together, if we haven't had a chance to have a coffee together, my name is Young, I'm lead pastor here at New Life. Uh, it is my joy to welcome you today. Man, there's uh, not a mask at all, there's a few masks, but it's uh, quickly becoming apparent. I can't use that as an excuse if I forget your names. Uh, if I do forget your names, please have grace. I do love you guys. You know, Maybe that's too early to say. It's feeling a little bit like uh, Bora when we were dating and I said it too early. So hopefully, <laughs> you don't feel that way. <laughs> all right. We're in Luke 19 today, uh, as Christine mentioned. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke at all, if you've read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, there's this anticipation, you know, for the one who is to come. This phrase appears several times throughout the Gospel of Luke. The one who is to come, and you see it all throughout the Gospel of Luke. And this anticipation, this looking forward to the one who is to come, it's quite similar to what we might feel right now, this Palm Sunday, just as we look forward to Easter. We know Easter's coming. You know, for those of us who are in Christ, we know Easter's coming, and we're just waiting for that day and the good news that Jesus has risen and we're made alive in him. It's what we base our faith around, it's what we base our lives around, and there's that anticipation both ways. We're at the halfway point, exactly at the halfway point in our Easter sermon series, uh, Make Things Right, as Christine mentioned. Uh, We've looked at the way that God designed our first home for us to be a place of shalom, a place of peace, complete wholeness, We've read together as humanity chose its own path though, away from God, and has suffered as a result, even losing the home that we built for ourselves. And we saw how this created the backdrop for the cries out to God for a deliverer, a messiah to come and save them from their current situation of being ruled by a foreign power. But deep down, we didn't want God. We wanted to be saved back into our independence, the very thing, that we chose, which ruined Shalom in the first place, which destroyed the only perfect home here on earth. And today, Palm Sunday, we see this call out to God come upon Jesus. I mentioned this in the sermon last week, right? The people have been waiting for a new king to rise up from the lineage of King David. You know, you guys know King David, right? The great King David, these people are waiting for the son of David, you know, several generations down. And surely, the rightful king's return is gonna mean that the uh, the current foreign government is ousted, and then they can rule themselves, right? That's what they're believing. And now in this passage, this promised son of David, Jesus, he enters into the holy city of Jerusalem, their homeland, which last couple of weeks we saw, it fell to the Babylonians, and is now under Roman occupation. So Rome is currently ruling over Jerusalem. So this passage begins with Jesus sending two of his disciples to bring a young donkey, a cult that has never been ridden. And like kings of the past, only a mount that has never been used for any other purpose is fit for this purpose, to carry royalty. And the disciples, they spread their clothes on the ground in front of him, as he enters the city and they pay their respects to him. And as this king enters into the city, he fulfills this prophecy that Zechariah foretold. Read with me, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now unlike other kings, this king enters the city in meekness and humility. But we soon see that despite all this jubilant praise that the crowd of disciples is giving to Jesus, they're surrounding him. The city itself, actually, doesn't welcome him. It doesn't welcome its king. The Pharisees, the leaders of the Israelites at this time, they're disgusted. You know, they try to stop this praise. But nothing is going to stop this praise as we read towards the end of that chapter. Even if it's lacking in its understanding of how great this king is, in fact, if the disciples were to stop singing, then the lifeless stones around them would cry out in song for their God and king. Can you tell that this isn't just a purely happy occasion? Like when you're reading this passage, can you tell there's this storm brewing beneath the surface? And there's dark clouds threatening overhead. Kind of feels like earlier in the week. You know, even as the disciples are throwing their garments down and singing out, we've seen this before. We've seen a pattern like this before throughout the Bible to this point. Even in the short snippets of passages that we've been studying over this series so far, the people consistently go their own way. They keep going, they reject God, and then they reap what they sow in the judgment they receive. Before we go any further, how about we pray together that God would open our eyes, help us to understand um, this passage by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your mercy, for your grace, and your goodness. You're steadfast even when we're not. You think of us even when we don't. And you love us. Thank you, Father, that we can sing to you Our praises together, God. United as one family in new life. It's so wonderful that we can sing to our King. I pray, Lord, that these songs, these praises that come from our hearts will be genuine and would recognize who you are, God. Would you, by the Holy Spirit, reveal to us in our hearts what it is that we expect from you and the way that we see you so that we can recognize if our vision is clouded by these things, and we can't recognize who you truly are. We want to know you. We want to know you as king. We want your kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven, especially in our hearts, God. So speak to us by the Holy Spirit. Open up our eyes that we might see, and open up our ears that we might hear, and open our hearts, Lord, that they might not be hearts of stone, but even if they are, that they would sing out in praise of our great King. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, from the beginning of time, from the way that God created us, we were made for His kingdom, and we were made for a king like Him. Only His benevolent rule could possibly satisfy our needs without being overbearing or evil or self serving. It's only Him, it's only Him that can accomplish this because he is pure glory and goodness and love, the most loving thing that God can possibly do for us is to give us himself. And the most loving thing that he could do is to rule us in his kingship. These are the most loving things that God could possibly do. In Eden's garden, humanity lived in this harmonious, loving rule. God was among us, we could actually walk with him. God kept nothing from humans, except for this one tree, and warned them that choosing this tree would result in their death. He gave them agency, he gave them the ability to actually choose, and to choose rightly. He trusted them. But rather than responding and love ourselves, we felt that, hey, maybe God's holding back from us. Maybe we can do better than him. And we chose our own flawed understanding rather than his perfect wisdom. And although we did this, we as humanity, we still clamored for a king to rule over us, to lead us. Do you realize this? Despite our collective choice, we want a flawless leader. It's bizarre, right? Like we say we don't want a leader, but deep down we kind of do. We want a flawless leader, we want someone powerful, we want someone who makes the right choices, We want someone who lives for the benefit of his people, the people that he rules over. As you can probably guess, we're a confused people. See, paradoxically, we seek independence from the one king that can actually provide all of these things to us. And so we sin by turning away from God, seeking out lesser flesh-and-blood alternatives, these replacements or even just ideals, these mantras, these philosophies that lead us. And unfortunately, by definition, these things can't possibly fulfill the longings of our hearts for a perfect king. How can we look to a human leader and expect a perfect king? So oftentimes, because of this, we get caught up in some tribalism. Like if you read the news at all, or if you're involved in Sports clubs, if you're involved in any sort of fandom, you'll recognize, you really want to tell other people, no, the thing that I support is better than the thing that you support. There's something inside of us that makes us do this. We grow obsessed with the leaders that we do have. And we usually go one of two ways. We either accept very strange flaws in our leaders because they're our guy, you know, we want him to be our guy, and our hearts desperately want them to be a good king for us. Or the other side, this side is not unique to Australians, but I think uh, we have it a little bit more than other countries. We sledge them. You know, we fly into this uncontrollable rage over their shortcomings. We talk about how bad they are. I got to see this in action uh, as someone who moved from Melbourne to Sydney pretty recently. Yeah, you, you guys probably feel like Sydney's way better than Melbourne, right? People in Melbourne feel the same way, just backwards. I don't know why. Okay? Now, with the long lockdown in Melbourne over coronavirus, I would see comments. You know, I told you about this. I would keep up to date with what's going on with coronavirus. I would see comments in news, social media. And the majority of Melburnians, as far as I could tell, seem to support the premier of Victoria. The majority of them. You know, they were like, oh, man, he's doing a good job, he's doing a tough job, making hard decisions, he's maintaining our, our safety. What a good guy. And the people that were critical of him were mostly downvoted, you know, people didn't like them, especially those from interstates, those from Sydney and Queensland, bragging about their comparative freedom. And melburnians would be like, boo, you know, like, shut up, we don't need to hear that, you know. Now, after moving to Sydney, I'm on these same sites, reading the news from a different perspective, and i would see after the Northern Beaches outbreak. You guys remember this back in December? Comments in news and social media, and the majority of Sydneysiders seem to support the premier of New South Wales, saying, man, she's doing a good and tough job, just making hard decisions to maintain our freedom. You know, yes, good work, Gladys the people that were critical of her, were mostly downvoted, especially those from Melbourne and Queensland. I don't know why Queensland's always uh, sticking their nose in our business, right? Like bragging about their comparative precaution, just how smart they are. And they're like, boo, you know, get out of here, Melbourne, go back to your lockdown, you know, all this stuff, right? People want a perfect king who will lead us, while at the same time, despising those that tell us what to do. And we want independence to do whatever we want. And that pattern that's seen throughout the Bible of Israel turning away from God again and again, that actually tells a story that's in our hearts as well. Is it too much to ask, though, for someone who's flawless? Is that too much to ask? Is it too much for us to expect someone who... Isn't embroiled in scandals, someone who's beyond reproach? on this earth, apparently, yes, it is too much to ask. But in Jesus, no, it's not too much to ask. He makes the right choices that we don't make. He's capable when we fall short, and he's loving when we're hateful, when we're selfish. In our passage today, Luke 19: 28 to 44. The crowd of, the, of disciples are looking to Jesus. Do you see this? The crowd of disciples are looking to him, thinking he's the one that's gonna help us, our country, Israel, to escape subjugation, to escape from Roman rule and achieve independence. It's a crowd of disciples. And deep down in their hearts, without them even knowing it, they're looking for this true king to come and make things right. And meanwhile, the rest of the city of Jerusalem, they're either apathetic to Jesus, or they're completely against him. You see this, it's not the whole city coming out and saying, yay, you know, like throwing down palm branches. You'd deforest the whole area if that happened, right? It was just the crowd of disciples that were there, not the whole city. Consider what the disciples are expecting. And crying out for. It's an earthly Messiah. They want a Savior to come and fix things up just the way they like it. What would they even do with the independence that they're asking for? You think about this, like this independence that they're seeking. What would they do if Jesus was really a rebel leader, like a human rebel leader come to set them free? You know, yes, let's overthrow the Roman government. Let's start Israel's independence again. What would they do? Then what? We know what would happen. The majority of the Old Testament actually tells us, it shows us Israel's human government. Kings come, kings go, each leading God's people in this cycle of turning away from Him towards their own idols. None of these kings actually take care of the people's true need to bring them back into right standing with God. In fact, oftentimes, these kings, they're self-serving, they're cruel, take from their people, and they look to service their own needs. Even their great king David took a wife from one of his subjects, had him killed off. Why can't the kings live for the people? Our conception of what a leader is has been warped over time. And we accept things from them that don't actually take care of our needs. And then we expect things from human leaders that they can't possibly live up to. And then we turn away from the only one who can actually provide what we need. A true king not only lives for his people, but he dies for them too. John 15, 13 reads this No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus isn't an earthly rebel leader here to do what they've been crying out for. Jesus is the true king who comes to set us free into citizenship in the true kingdom. It's not about let's set up this empire for you, let's get you to that kingdom and his kingdom is coming here on earth, today as well, through each citizen that lives for his glory and his honor. In our passage today, who's seeking his glory and honor? Because there's a lot of praise going on. Only the crowd of disciples clamoring around him, praising him for something they don't fully comprehend. See, they're not seeking his glory and his honor truly. Because although they praise him as a king, it's a lowercase king, right? They can't imagine what this true God king is. He's here to overthrow sin and death, not this foreign government. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, they're indignant. The rest of the people don't even take notice. Does anyone in this passage even understand what's happening here? Read with me, Luke 19, 29 to 31. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a cult tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. Look at how, as Jesus approaches the city, he directs two of his disciples, go and find a cult, this young donkey. He doesn't say, hey, ask around, just see if anyone has a cult that fits this description. He says, you will find a cult in this village. Do the disciples not think this is weird at all? Like, go and find this cult. He knows what's ahead, and he doesn't need to ask around for these things. He is the word that came forth and created this donkey in his power and majesty. He's the one who breathed life into the lungs of the donkey's owners. He knows where to find this donkey. He's God, God in the flesh, true God and true man. The Son of God is the only one capable of leading us without fault, leading us even to things that we can't see ahead of us. And he knows where he's headed and what is to come, even better than the fact that we know that Good Friday is coming up this Friday. And even though he knows that with each step that he takes, he's moving closer to death on the cross, he remains sacrificially obedient. He knows what's ahead, but he still continues. He enters into Jerusalem, an unrecognized king, even though he knows he's going to be soon crucified among thieves. Along the way, quite ironically, he'll be crowned on the road to death with thorns, and he'll sit upon his true throne, the cross. But he knows the will of the Father, that this will bring salvation to all who believe, and that's enough for him. So Jesus, the truly humble king who makes a way for us, our lives as followers of Christ should mirror this, ought to play out like Jesus' long road to the cross. Are we characterized also by sacrificial obedience alongside Christ? Do our lives preach this message of Jesus to those who might believe in him and be saved? And this is true life for us. As we find clarity in our spirits, lives filled with meaning and purpose, and an everlasting joy that nothing can take away. Go down to verse 35 with me. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. If you're a Christian here today, there's a strange thing that happens once you start following Jesus and you read through the passion narrative again you know, the passion narrative of everything that happens in the final week of Jesus' ministry here on earth, as you read through it, as a Christian, you start seeing these little ironies, these little things that are like, ooh, that's weird. Why is that happening? Like, you know that the people don't know who Jesus is. You know it. You can tell. You can see it, right? You can tell that they don't truly know that he's God's son, the rightful king, and yet you see instances like the verses that say that the disciples place Jesus on the colt, on the donkey, as though they're enthroning their new king. And then they throw their garments on the road, which is what they did to inaugurate an Old Testament king named Jehu all the way back in 2 Kings 9. It's the same thing, the same kind of pattern that plays out. They don't realize what they're doing, and yet they're saying, you're our king. It's as though the stones of their hearts are crying out. And saying, this is our king, even though their mouths don't understand what they're saying. The fact that they even sing the words of Psalm 118 over Jesus. We looked at Psalm 118 recently, right? But do you know the difference? Do you notice the difference from last week when we looked at Psalm 118? They add the words, the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You remember last week, it's blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is king. Even though they don't understand what they do, even though the rest of the people reject them, reject him, he is king. And the disciples, man, they clearly had these great expectations that Jesus would be the Messiah, who would lead their rebellion against Rome and overthrow them. But the greater reality escaped them that he was here as a messianic redeemer, here to deliver them from sin and death. Even as they sang, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven, they couldn't fathom that this wasn't just talking about an earthly peace, this wasn't just talking about peace on earth with their flesh and blood leaders like the Roman governor or even amongst each other No, eternity's at stake. This is peace with God himself. The one that they've been at odds with since they turned their backs on him in the garden, and ever since, as they've continually gone their own way, age after age. And this sets up what is to come. Now, you know in movies, when there's this scene of strange serenity, There's this calm quietness, you know, like, I don't know why. Uh, Bora and I, when we enjoy movies together, we recognize these scenes these days. Very early on, usually, there's like a little boy talking to his father. Oh, you know, it's like a really nice scene. And then we look at each other, we're like, this dad is too nice, he's about to die. This is not good. And we feel really sad. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want to watch anymore. Um, This is that scene. This is that scene, As the people sing and celebrate Jesus, there's a violent uprising stirring beneath the surface. Jesus has entered as king, bringing the kingdom to the Israelites, most important royal and religious city, Jerusalem. You break up the name Jerusalem, It's Yerushalom, Shalom, it's the place of peace, And this wasn't some earthly kingdom that was coming back so that they could rule again. This is the kingdom of God entering into their city. And soon, the king will be crucified outside the city as king of the Jews, ironically so-called by the Roman official, even as his people reject him. There have been a few times during this uh, coronavirus pandemic that I felt certain things about leadership that we've had in the world. I don't know if you're you know, like me in this, I've been frustrated at times by certain leaders and their lack of foresight. As some leaders have just flat out ignored the advice of their health officials and scientists, and then been surprised when things went from bad to worse. Like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Like, I've been shocked as well by the lack of planning that's in place when certain infrastructure just doesn't exist for some reason. Like, we knew what was going to happen, and yet, like, why are certain things... Sometimes I've just been amazed by the blind optimism that seems to be central to some leaders' plans. Like, they base their policies on people just complying and not breaking rules. Like, I know people, they don't do that. I don't do that, you know? We tend to break rules for some reason. But then I think about these leaders. I'm like, man, they're only human. Like, What can I really expect, right? I'm reminded, you know, pray for our elected officials, for our earthly leaders. I'm reminded I need to be a good witness about the way that I live. But check this out. Jesus, the true king, he takes into account everything that people can and will do and everything that they can't and won't do. And he builds that into his plan. Do you see this? Like, look down at Luke uh, 19, 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Can you imagine this scene? Like, try to picture the Pharisees in your head. I don't know why they look like uh, old teachers of mine. Like, can you imagine, for these guys, the leaders of the Israelite community, though they hated Jesus, they were still willing to put up with him, as long as he stayed in his lane a little bit, the moment it crosses over into the people of Israel thinking of him as the Messiah. Things get worse. They rebuke Jesus by telling him, "Hey, keep your disciples on their leash. They're your followers. Tell them you're not the Messiah." Like Jesus, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This goes against their teaching of the Hebrew Bible. It's borderline blasphemy. You're equating yourself to something that's greater. And this sets in motion the rest of the events of the Passion. The events that we're going to see move onwards towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Before we get there, though, look at how Jesus is affected by all that's happening here on Palm Sunday. Verse 41 As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? but now it is hidden from your eyes for the days will come for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you surround you and hem you in on every side they will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when god visited you jesus weeps Maybe he's feeling this sting of irony about their singing for peace. If only they knew what would truly bring peace, but they can't possibly know. Why can't they know peace? This is that peace that's characterized by shalom that we've talked about in the last few weeks, the word that we looked at together all the way back in week one, and this is a divine wholeness, a peace with God and of God which was certainly evident in Jesus' life, but it wasn't characteristic of the lives of his people. The people can't understand peace because they have chosen time and time again to not seek this peace. It's not in their vocabulary. It's not in their grid of thinking. Have you ever noticed that the more times you do something, the easier it gets to keep on doing it, and the harder it is to stop. Have you noticed this? Like, this might be true of some good things for you. Okay, let's start with the good. Like, maybe you've built up a habit of exercise, and every day that you exercise, it gets easier to go back to do it again. Or maybe of getting good sleep. You set a routine in place, you go to sleep at, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. sometimes on Sundays. You said a good habit, right? But it's often true in our lives of sin, especially our pet sins, the things that we struggle with perpetually. And usually we have a choice, right? Sin or don't sin. And sometimes we choose sin, and it becomes easier to continue to repeat. There's this uh, mistaken belief that we have in our heads. I had it too, especially before I became a Christian, that we can keep on diving into our sin for the rest of our lives, and then on our deathbed, moments before our last breath, we can whisper, I believe in you, Jesus, and then we just go. (laughs) But what would make us think that the very thing we've gone against our entire lives is the thing that we're gonna turn to at the end of it. It makes no sense. Like if you keep on sowing into the evil desires of your heart, eventually your heart grows hard, just like the people of Jerusalem here. Their problem isn't that they won't repent or turn to God recognize him as king over their lives. Now their problem is, the continued pattern of spiritual rebellion that they've exhibited throughout their generations has hardened their hearts to the point that they're unable to see that there even is a problem. They have no desire to repent because they have no ability to do what they don't want. Ironically, the people who spend Passover singing about their deliverance from Pharaoh in Egypt. They forget he also hardened his heart against God until there was no longer any desire or ability to repent. If they only knew this day what will bring them shalom. And yet even the evil desires of human hearts, the wicked plans against Jesus, these, are not outside of God's sovereignty and love. The type of king that we have in God is as stated before, a king who takes into account everything that people can and will do and builds that into his plan to redeem his people. Sadly, Jerusalem will fall again. We saw the way that it fell to Babylon in the past, but because of the people's rejection of their king and Jesus' foretelling of what will happen, comes true there's another siege to come and Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed but out of this destruction is going to come salvation we'll see the greatest of it this Good Friday and this Easter Sunday I really encourage you to join us uh, this Good Friday and this Easter Sunday as well let me pray for us